Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Philly's favorite listeners, it's Pastor Jonathan Mason back in the pastor's office today, uh, and I want to welcome you to the show. We are so excited to have you here, uh, and we've got a great show lined up for you. I always normally tell you uh, about my sermon and what we talked about in service uh, today, but I actually did not preach today. I had a guest preacher in uh, because I had to do a Zoom driving course uh, that was court ordered uh, uh, by the Virginia courts uh, because when I was driving uh, to my place down there, uh, they caught me going a little faster than I should have been going. So I asked the judge for grace. You know grace? You know about grace, right? I asked the judge for grace uh, and they allowed me to take a four-hour driving course, but it caused me to miss church today. Uh, So I don't have much to say about worship. We'll talk about that next week, but how appropriate it is that I don't have a lot to say about that because we've got a great first guest. Our first guest is the leader of the fourth largest police department in the United States of America, uh, uh, the first black woman uh, to lead the Philadelphia Police Department, and it's my privilege, my honor, my pleasure uh, to welcome into the pastor's office today Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. Police Commissioner, welcome into the pastor's office. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you having me today. Well, listen, now here's the first thing I've got to ask you. You started last February. Uh, it's been one year. I don't think any police commissioner in Philadelphia uh, has ever had to lead a police department in the midst of a pandemic, uh, in the midst of a, a great racial divide. Uh, 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 it, there's been so much that has transpired uh, in your first year. First of all, are you all right? How you doing? What's it been like? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm maintaining. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I, look, between the overlay of the pandemic, we had increases in our violent crime, our homicides, our non-fatal shootings. But then we also saw civil unrest during the summer. And then the elections happened, right? So we had to deal with everything around the elections. And then we had our own critical incident here. And then while all of that was happening, we were experiencing COVID-19 right. and having to uh, roll out new protocols with how we interact with people, um, how we, uh, you know, just everything that we're so used to doing as human beings, we had to hit a reset button and adjust all of that. And while all of this was happening, um, I lost several people in the line of duty. You know, Corporal O'Connor was murdered almost immediately after I got here. And then it was one person after the other that was due to COVID-19. 
duty death. So it's been one thing after the other, but I'm going to tell you this. We have been steadfast to executing uh, strategy, making sure that we remain uh, present and visible for community and for each other within the department as well. Because you said, you know, you said no other commissioner in this city has experienced what I've experienced. But I will tell you from speaking to my other colleagues all across the country, no one has experienced what we're experiencing right now because of what the pandemic exacerbated. So I'm proud of the fact that we continued on. People are like, oh, you know, what's your proudest moment from 2020? Is it that you survived it? I said, absolutely not. It's that we withstood it and we continued on. We continued to execute. We continued to implement. We didn't just stand there and let everything happen around us. Uh, you know, we moved forward. And I'm hoping as we move forward with 2021 uh, with intention and renewed purpose, I remain hopeful that more and more people continue to come together and address these issues around violence that we're seeing, to yank some of these young folks by their coattails when they see them out there doing what they know they're about to do, because, you know, we're in uniforms. Everybody's not going to listen to us. But there's a lot of people that I've met personally that are down on the ground in the community that are doing some great work. So I, I move into 2021 helpful, uh, not helpful, hopeful. You're talking about old school discipline. See, when I grew up, uh, police commissioner, if I got out of line in the streets, uh, my father gave my the neighbors permission to punish me. That's right, permission to punish me. The, the, he gave the vice principal of the school permission to do what was necessary. Uh, and then when I got home, he said, you're going to get it from me too. And, yep. and, and I just believe a lot of that is missing uh, in the community today. Uh, I, I just, I just believe, and I know it's a major effort and a major push that you're engaging in to get the community to rise up and pull these children in. Uh, there have been a rash of shootings. Um, I, I was reading an article the other day about a 15-year-old uh, that was shot, uh, another young man who lost his life, one who's still recuperating that was shot on Frankfurt Avenue. I wanted to get to this later, but we're here now. I just preached a funeral today uh, for a 27-year-old young man uh, that was shot down uh, and killed uh, for no good reason at all. Uh, police Commissioner, what can we do? How can we work with your police department uh, to stem the tide of this gun violence in our communities? I would say do just that. Work with us. And I know, I know that there are so many reasons that we've given over time for community not to I know this and I acknowledge that. But the only way for us to get to the root of this is to work together. And that means witnesses have to come forward. And again, we recognize that we have to ensure safety of witnesses when they do come forward. Because a lot of these um, these incidents are occurring on the block. You know, these people know each other. Right. They live within the same block, same neighborhood. Um, small networks of uh, people, they know each other. So they want to be safe, but at the same time, they want to trust that we, the police department, are going to follow through in our word and what we say to what we're going to do. So we're doing everything that we can on our end to ensure that there's accountability, to ensure that we're making arrests where arrests arrest need to be made, and we're clearing a lot of these cases to show that there's consequences. But there's so many stakeholders involved that also need to step up and do their part. But it starts, um, you know, with 
a lot of these witnesses that we rely upon, because this is evidence that we're talking about in order to clear a case, it starts with those who know anything coming forward and sharing what they know with us. And again, I, I acknowledge that it takes trust. You know, we've been accused uh, that, well, if it was a white person that got shot or if it was a police officer that got shot, we get those solved or, or a small child, those get solved right away within 24 hours. The truth of the matter behind that is, is that more people are willing to come forward and either offer their witness testimony or uh, offer their video evidence, whatever it is. And we need more of that behind a lot of these shootings that we're seeing as well. So, but again, it comes down to trust, right? And yeah. and, and when we're looking at uh, Philly's favor, uh, and again, I th I'm so glad you're on our station. Uh, we launched this station in June in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, when they asked me, where did you want to build your studios? I told them, I'm going to build it right in the church where I pastor, right in the heart of Frankfurt, right in the, well, let's be honest, right in the hood, uh, because I wanted to bring some positive attention to this neighborhood. But I can tell you very clearly, police commissioner that a lot of the people in this neighborhood they look at the police as occupiers uh, as opposed yeah. to partners in keeping the community safe and 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 I think there has to be a concerted effort uh, to to alleviate those concerns uh, I've had the mayor on we've talked about this issue I've had members of the city council on we've talked about this issue but now I'm excited to talk to you because I I'm really interested in your position or your uh, take on how we break down those barriers of distrust uh, and get folk to start working with your team. Yeah, it, to your point, it's a very concerted effort. Um, and there's a fine line that we're walking, a very delicate balance that we have to find. And quite frankly, I don't have an answer. I have a lot of answers to a lot of stuff, but I don't have any answers on this one because you know, we know that people want us visible in their neighborhood. We know also that when we follow the data and we put officers in the areas where um, the violence is, is, is happening the most, um, it drives down the numbers. At some point, it displaces it and might push it somewhere else in a different neighborhood, but people want to see us there. How do we balance that with the feeling of those who live in the community of being over-policed. Because every time you turn around, you see a police officer there. I think the easiest way to get to that is, one, you gotta, we got to explain to people while we're there, one. But the second thing that I've heard that rings true across every community meeting that I've attended, every town hall, every forum that I've participated in, they all told me, they say, look, that's fine and well. But when we see you, we expect you to treat us with dignity and respect. And the sooner that we're able to make connections with folks, and it goes both ways, right? Folks see us as human beings behind the badge, and we get out of our cars, and we know who these kids belong to. I say kids, they write kids nowadays. They can be wrong folks. But we know who they belong to, where they live, you know, who the elders are in their home. The more we establish relationships, I think the better off we'll be, but it takes time, and it's not going to happen overnight. Can I offer? Can I offer? And I, I don't want you to take this as a critique. Uh, I want you not to take all. this as an observation. So, so I'm in Frankfurt, as I've shared with you, uh, and okay. there is a police presence in Frankfurt. Uh, however, uh, when I when I see the police uh, on the corner. 
There may be six or seven of them, police commissioner, but guess what they're doing? They're talking to one another. And yep. I wonder, yep. I wonder if things might get a little better with the relationships if they were walking around and dropping into the local supermarket uh, or the local corner store, if they were, and, and, I, and I understand that maybe they have to operate in pairs, I get that, but if they were walking around talking to the actual residents of the community, um, I, I just believe that would help to break down some barriers. You know, we, listen, we all watched those black and whites growing up uh, 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 of, of police officers in, in the, I'm, I'm putting quotation marks up if you see my hands, in the neighborhood. Everybody knew who they were. They played basketball with the kids. They were. I'm just wondering, is that still possible today? Absolutely, it's still possible. Absolutely. You know, we're human beings, too. And it's really easy for us to gravitate towards one another because that's where it's most comfortable. Um, you know, and uh, to be honest with you, there are a lot of people who are publicly supportive of the police. Um, but nowadays, there are a lot of people who aren't. And it's very difficult to discern between the two sometimes, depending on where you are. Uh, you know, oftentimes, we, as police officers, need a reminder of our true north and why we, why we did this, why we got into this job in the first place, right? And it's to help people. It's not that we're antisocial people, that we don't enjoy engaging with folks, because that's the furthest from the truth. Uh, so every now and again, we just need a little reminder. Sometimes... For me, it's a smile. For an officer on the street, it's a smile or a thank you. We don't do this job for pleases and thank yous. But every now and again, we need a reminder um, that everybody's not out against, you know, against us or out to get us or have something negative to say. So I think that's absolutely doable. And that's something that we're all pushing and striving to do from the top down. So, so with Philadelphia listening, I'm, I'm and I'm not grandstanding, but I, I just thought about this as you talk. Uh, I'm making an observation, but I've done nothing about it, right? I've been watching it for a couple years. I've done nothing about it. Uh, I'm going to meet with our culinary team here at the church, and if it's allowed, I, I, I know I can't take them money, but maybe I can take them some snacks, uh, you know, and make them feel a little more welcome in the community. Uh, and so we're going to make a commitment to do a little bit more outreach reach with the police officers in this community to show uh, the neighborhood that it's all right. They're, like you just said, Commissioner, they're human beings, too. I, I want to run one other thing by you uh, in regard to this topic. Uh, how uh, and, and, and I've asked this before to other elected officials, and, you know, I've, it's always come down to budget. But one thing I absolutely believe is that if there is an issue or an incident going on in the community and the perpetrators of that incident see somebody that they know that maybe they grew up with this person knew their mama or their auntie on the dad's side that maybe there's a way to de-escalate because of familiarity um, it's hard sometimes when the police are trying to de-escalate a situation and the folk looking at you don't have any clue who you are, but let's look at it on the other side. The police who are doing it aren't used to that neighborhood, aren't used to that population. Every neighborhood has a personality. Uh, I don't know. Is it just money but or is it recruitment? Or is there a way to be able to put police in neighborhoods that they either came from or that they have some familiarity with? The answer right now is yes and no. So I don't have the ability to move people like talking about it. And that's contractual. 
right? Once somebody is assigned where they are, it's very difficult to transfer them. Okay. With that said, I do think, however, that we can uh, be more intentional to the best to the best that we can to assign folks to maybe where they're, you know, if not where they're from, but where they're most familiar, because I think that's helpful. But in the end, you know, and I think um, the fact that uh, moving forward, you're, folks, in order to apply, are going to have to have lived here for a year uh, in order to be eligible to apply for a police officer. But with that said, the whole idea of the philosophy of community policing is that it shouldn't matter where you're from. Right. It's a philosophy. It's not plug and play. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not from a particular neighborhood, I still should have the ability to use my interpersonal skills to get out of a vehicle, strike up a conversation with a complete stranger and find commonalities and then go from there, regardless of what I look like, regardless of what my background is, because those are the folks that we're supposed to be hiring. So. To answer your question, I think it's yes and no. I think we can do a little bit uh, more on the front end to be intentional around assignments, but it's very difficult once officers are assigned to transfer them. Understood, and and thank you. That's 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 a, one of the be- that's the best answer I've gotten in that as I've asked that question. Listen, you're listening to Philly's favor, 100.7, 99.5 HD3. We are in the pastor's office with Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. She has given us some of her time, and I want to be respectful of her time. So I only have a, a couple more things I'd just like to chat with you about, and then we're going to let you get back to doing what, what it is that you have a passion for. Uh, but the, the the one thing I do want to talk to you about is that uh, right now down in my sanctuary, I've got OEM. I've got the fire department. We're getting ready uh, to do a vaccination site here tomorrow that Lord willing will hopefully open up vaccinations here uh, on a weekly basis because the demand is so high. Um, I see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we finally got a, a president in the White House that uh, is 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 putting the people first. Uh, he just ordered another hundred million doses of of Johnson and Johnson. Uh, uh, the city's working hard to make sure Philadelphians get vaccinated and get over their phobias. Uh, as you look towards the balance of the year possibly returning to some sense of normalcy uh, in the summer. I mean, what are uh, one or two of your top priorities uh, as you are in your second year of leading this great police force? Uh, and, and, and again, how do we galvanize uh, elected officials, uh, the rank and file, and the community to help you meet some of your most important goals? I appreciate that question. Uh, I also appreciate that you kind of put summer out there as a delineator. But the reality is that, you know, I thought, that's me being naive, I thought that the winter would slow some things down. I originally thought when the pandemic first was considered a pandemic, that that would slow things down. I thought that stay-home orders would slow things down. None of that happened. And so while we would usually be in, you know, planning mode for what happens when the kids get out of school and, you know, making sure that we partner with those who are rolling out programming for our young people, we're doing that for sure anyway because of the summer. But the reality is that um, school hasn't been in. And those who want to be outside, we're outside. And the numbers continue to increase and then slow down. So 
we saw some really common themes uh, from 2020 as it related to our violent crime. And, it, you know, it was uh, centered around domestic violence, the use of social media, um, and as it relates to a lot of these social media beefs and arguments. Uh, and we're making sure that we bolster our efforts uh, around that in addition to the open-air drug markets and uh, the narcotics trades that we do. So in 2021, moving forward, uh, we've already opened our Kensington Police District because a lot of what was going on in Kensington uh, was driving the violent crime citywide. We bolstered our Narcotics Bureau, uh, specifically in the East Division, uh, because, again, like I said, a lot of what's going on there is driving a lot of our violent crime citywide. Uh, we're rolling out a lot of, uh, there's four specific domestic violence seminars that we rolled out uh, to increase awareness and then to also prioritize to ensure that we're prioritizing those cases internally for investigation. And then we're also bolstering our social media efforts, not just making sure that uh, when we're presenting cases to the DA's office for charging that any uh, relative social media is included in that case file, but also ensuring that our, our detectives are trained to know how to go in and look at a lot of that stuff and that our intelligence analysts, obviously we can't be social media police for everybody out there, but when it's brought to our attention, people that were, you know, individuals or groups that we need to pay attention to on social media, if we can get ahead of some of this stuff, we're certainly doing that. So 2020 has showed us a lot. So you add the summer in, again, we're partnering with, folks who are rolling out programming for our young people, but really, really being intentional about partnering with those grassroots organizations on the ground who are doing a lot of this preventative work to keep a lot of these shootings from happening. As we prepare to close out this interview, I, I want to kind of pivot and just focus on you a little bit, Police Commissioner. Uh, when we when we started the conversation, uh, uh, we talked about our... our uh, membership in the divine nine so i know you are a lady of aka i joked with you but you know you, you know you know you ever hear somebody say serious not serious uh but i joke with you about my case of uh uh aka ptsd and and i want you to know i had your international president on she couldn't help me you said and nothing you can do about that so i'm just going to go to a counselor we'll figure it out but i want to find out how a young lady who grew up in oakland with a negative perception of the police ended up as the police commissioner of the fourth largest police department in the country. It is an amazing tale, and I know we don't have time to go all through it, but if you can just kind of give us the elevator of how you ended up moving into law enforcement and now elevated to this position. I believe my steps were ordered. Come I never on. in a million years thought that, one, I'd be a police officer, but yet uh, be sitting in the chair that I'm in now. And it was because of a, an initial positive interaction with a police officer uh, that changed my entire perspective on not just policing, uh, but on police in general. I saw, because I had an opportunity to fellowship with a police officer outside of an enforcement action and see an officer in a positive way, it then opened my mind to saying, you know what, I could probably volunteer at the police department when they asked me to do it after spending two weeks with a police officer because of a program on a dare in high school that I took part in. And then once they got their claws in me, and I say that 
<laughs> very seriously, uh, I never left. And it was because I had to make a decision. Like a lot of people, life happens. And I was the first one to go to college in my family. Between my grandparents, they had a third grade and sixth grade education. My mom was the oldest of six, and they sent all of their kids one by one. My mom and her next sister in line being the first one sent them to California from New Orleans. And then they came one by one. And then finally, my granddaddy came when he saved up enough money. But it was a big deal for my grandparents, for their kids to graduate from high school. So for me to graduate from college, deal, right? Huge deal. And, you know, being raised by a single mom, you spend a lot of your time with your maternal grandparents, you know, which like my second, second set of parents. And I went to college in my last semester of undergrad. Uh, life happened, and I learned that I was expecting my first son. And I realized life got real. I thought I was going to go straight through and get a doctorate. I wanted to be a social psychologist. And... Um, I joke and say I'm still a social psychologist without the doctorate, but all of that to say, um, I knew that I needed to get a job with benefits, and because I had interned with the Oakland Police Department, they were like, hey, you know what, you need to take this, you know, apply for this job. And again, I never thought about it because I wanted to continue on and do school. I knew all that stuff would always be there, but I wanted to go to school because it was so important to my grandparents and my mom and my and my aunts and my uncle. And I said, well, I got a newborn and I need benefits. I wasn't even thinking about money. I just didn't want the stigma of being on public aid. And so I took the physical agility when my, my son was two weeks old. I was still in stitches. I didn't have any business out there, but I did it. And I went through the whole academy with a newborn. And with the support of my family and just, again, by the grace of God, you know, my purpose was just laid out for me and divine for me. And every step of the way throughout my career, every promotion, every assignment, everywhere I've landed, um, quite frankly, they're not always jobs that cops want to take because they're hard. I've done the hard jobs. And so when I realized that I knew that I can add value, I had more to offer. Um, and someone called me about this job here in Philadelphia. I said, why not me? And here I am. Wow, that that's a, that's an inspirational story. You know what? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna pull this interview to a close, but I want to invite you uh, to come on in the studio when you have some free time. I want to do like the young folks say and chop it up uh, because because you've got a, a wonderful story that I want our listeners to hear more about. Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. It has been a joy to talk to you. I want to thank you for coming in the pastor's office. I want you to know that we're praying for you. But James says faith without works is dead. So I want to offer some works, too. Anytime you need a platform to get a message out, you're a police commissioner. You can get it anywhere. But anytime you want to come on radio and talk about anything, you've got Philly's favor as a platform. Use us to be able to reach the community and to help the people understand that you've got a great mission ahead of you and you want to impact this city. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. And we hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you, Pastor. Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages.
Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office, and it is my pleasure to bring on our next guest. Uh, she is the state representative for the 195th District here in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, we are just excited to have State Representative Donna Bullock in the pastor's office. Representative Bullock, welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really blessed and honored to be in the pastor's office. You don't usually get to get, go there unless you come into a set Christ or, you know, have that moment with your, your pastor. So this is an honor and and um, really happy to have this opportunity to speak to you today. I got I to gotta tell you, I always get excited when somebody understands the significance of the pastor's office. You see, I, I grew up as the, as the son of a pastor, uh, and, and I know that everything— that was dealt with in the church was dealt with in the pastor's office. And that's, that's our right. goal is to deal with the issues of this city, of this state, of this country, right here in the pastor's office with people that are at the table. And you are at the table. And and I first want to tell you that we appreciate the work we're doing, but I know one of the things uh, that has been heavily on your radar uh, over the, over the uh, recent past and present is police reform. Uh, uh, we've done a lot. We've heard a lot about Act 111. Uh, we know that you and your and members uh, that you've pulled that have, have, are working with you have been working with the governor and working with the the House to bring some much needed reform. Can you talk to us a little bit one about the need and two about where we are with making progress to get to some solutions? Right. So shortly after the incident of George Floyd's murder, a group of elected officials, mostly young elected, elected officials from the city and the state, formed the police reform working group. And we said, let's get this work done. Let's put our heads together and figure out what have we all been doing in our separate circles and our separate spaces and pull that work together and really leverage our, our role and our power to, to push legislation and policy that can make a difference and keep our community safe. Um, and to really um, hold our police accountable to the communities that they serve. This was important to us. Many of us have been working on this long before George Floyd. We had legislation on the books. We were, you know, frustrated that the bills weren't moving forward. Um, and this gave us an opportunity, an unfortunate incident that gave us an opportunity to push um, for change. And some of those bills made it across the governor's desk. That it, one was what I called the "Don't Pass the Trash" bill from Rep. Rab, uh, which focused on making sure that police officers that had bad discipline records weren't mo being moved and passed from one department to another department before their discipline was final. And then, you know, some training and some mental health resources that we all felt were necessary for our police officers to have so that they can be more effective at their jobs and that when they're working in our communities, they are keeping our communities safe. And then I was working on a bill called Act 111. And this was important to me because as I looked at all of the legislation that was happening and all of the cases that were happening um, where we've seen incidents of police abuse and violence or even just misconduct and uh, very public cases, and then the, you see those cases happen and the police officers and the FOP, which is the police union, would go through a process called arbitration in which they would appeal the decision of their supervisors, uh, the discipline decision, and an arbitrator made a decision about putting that police officer back on the force, about um, undermining the, the discipline of the supervisor. And all of that is because of an act that was 
um, enacted in 1968 called Act 111. Act 111 is an act in which the FOP and the firefighters union gave up their right to strike in exchange for an arbitration process for um, the collective bargaining agreements, any of the issues around the collective bargaining agreement, but also around discipline appeals as well. And why this is important is because what we know has happened that the FOP has gained so much power, political power, public goodwill over the years from the 60s where they used this narrative that communities needed police officers, that they were these heroes, that they were going to save our communities. And I I will be honest, during the 60s, there were some things happening in the 60s that look a lot like what was happening in our country this year with protests and communities in our cities and spreading outside of our cities. And the, the FOP used that as a narrative to say, if you want us to keep you safe in the suburbs, in other communities, if you want to keep these protests from spreading out of our cities, you need to take care of us as as police officers. And FOP really, really hammered that message home. And over the years, have gained so much power in the collective bargaining process that if we wanted our police commissioner to, to for example, ban certain practices like chokeholds and such or knee holds, that that policy would have to go through the FOP in a collective bargaining process. So she, she won't be able to make those decisions without having the union agree to that. And so a lot of the reforms we were looking for were getting bottlenecked in the collective bargaining and union negotiations that were happening. Um, and so I knew it was important that we broke down this this sort of un, this this leverage that the FOP had, and when we were looking at police reform, the real real crux of it, the, the, the critical part of that, was looking at the unequal balance of power between the FOP and the city or township in which those police departments were operating. So I, I, I've got to I've got to bring this up because I, I see across the country when we have issues uh, involving the police and the community uh, that there seems to be when these issues take place a blue wall that forms uh, to protect the police uh, and they're typically led by the unions. Uh, Representative Bullock, uh, and, I, and I'm I'm not trying to ask anything that is in any way controversial, but are the unions a help or a hindrance in these situations? You know, in, in the regards to Act 111, we've gotten some support from different unions, but there there is a lot of hesitation. We all have long, you know, myself and many others have long believed in labor um, rights and, and wanting to support the rights of workers, making sure that workers have benefits, making sure that the working condition for for all of our workers are are um, are appropriate and safe, but um, you know, and, and so we try to support those unions in those efforts. And and many unions they've created solidarity. They they stand with other unions, and so they have a reckoning to deal with right now. They have a reckoning to deal with. As you know, if I'm a nurse's part of a teachers union or a nurses union, or a um, the electricians union, and I believe in racial and social justice, which many of those unions are saying right now, how do I reconcile that with our sisters and brothers who are in the FOP? And unfortunately, their work has the lives of many folks in 
often black and brown folks at risk and they're not willing to make the changes within their their workforce the changes within their own unions and the and they're not willing to get rid of the bad apples you have to start questioning how you know how far does this union support and solidarity goes and how can we stand by our beliefs in favorable working conditions good wages benefits everyone deserves that even our police officers while also making sure that we are keeping people safe and that when folks are are taking liberties with their positions as officers of the law and putting other folks at risk and they're corrupt and all those things, we need to hold them accountable for that. And if you're complicit in that, then you're just as liable as the individual officers or the FOP that cover up this behavior. Now, we know, though, uh, Representative Bullock, that transparency is one of the major challenges in getting to the truth in a lot of these situations. Uh, how is the work that you're doing uh, impacting or enabling us to have transparency uh, in these investigations to really understand uh, what's happening, uh, to, un- to, to get under, to, 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 as a friend of mine likes to say, peel back the onion and really see what's going on? Right. So these arbitration hearings are often not open to the public, right? We don't know what's happening in these hearings. We don't know who the arbitrators are. We don't know the outcome of the hearings. We often don't know the reasoning behind the the, the decision. Um, my legislation that I'm working on in Harrisburg will require all of that. It will allow for public arbitration hearings. It will allow for um, some um, some flexibility in how we select arbitrators. And it will require the arbitrator to, to, to provide in writing his or her reasoning and explanation for the decision that he or she made um, so, that, so that the public can hold those things accountable. The second thing that allows for transparency is that the legislation would require that the, the city um, has some sort of public comment period before they engage in a collective bargaining process with the FOP. This is something that is also being introduced or has been introduced in the city of Philadelphia at the council level by Councilwoman Catherine Gilmore Richardson. Um, and there was parallel language in the state le- uh, legislation that I'm proposing. Partisan politics is, seems to be the order of the day. Do you feel like you're going to be able to get the type of support across the aisle to be able to get this legislation through and, and to the governor for signature? That is definitely going to be a challenge. You know, when we started this work, I had support across the aisle. I had a colleague and who was the co-prime sponsor, and we were working in tandem to get this done. Um, unfortunately, between the time of June and January, his attention has been diverted elsewhere. He's focusing on other legislation, mainly around voting and uh, some concerns he has on that side of the aisle around the electoral uh, and politics and election process. Um, so I'm hoping that I can continue to engage him and hopefully others on the other side of the aisle. There was a, an interest in this, and even though it may not be in the in the headlines right now, we may not be saying George Floyd's name every day. We may not see protests in our cities every day as we did over the summer. This issue remains to be 
an issue for me and many in our community. It's not some trend that comes and go because it's not a hashtag right now. We need to continue to push on this issue and continue to say that police reform, Act 111, and other reforms is still a priority for our communities um, and it's still a priority for, for Pennsylvania. Um, and regardless what side of the aisle or regardless if you're from Philadelphia or a smaller town between here and Pittsburgh. Well, we had Wallace right here in Philadelphia. Uh, and, 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 and where our station is located right here in Frankfurt, uh, uh, there's always interaction between the community and the police. There have been several issues here in the last year. All of them just don't get the publicity that some of these other cases receive. And, and, and it leads me to ask the question, because the root cause here really is, is, is communication and understanding. Uh, it, you know, the community has a role to play, but those that are paid to do the job of policing, uh, I think training and education and understanding how to de-escalate situations in communities uh, is incredibly important. And and I'm wondering, you know, you know, we spend our money in the places where we consider to be or to deem important and significant. Are we directing any dollars uh, toward training, uh, toward education, to help these officers know better how to interact? with the community. Absolutely. I know that there are efforts that Commissioner Outlaw is trying to implement. There was some legislation that we passed back in June around training, um, not particularly around de-escalation, but other training and dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress for officers who are on the job. These are essential, but I would also tell you that this is also where the collective bargaining agreement comes into play. Because if there were if, if the FOP does not want to require such, they can reject that in their collective bargaining agreement. And if there's no agreement or the arbitrator doesn't find it necessary, then it doesn't, it's, it's very difficult for the commissioner to require such training. So again, this is why all the reforms we're talking about, even how we defund or reallocate resources to policing and community supports, mental health supports, all of those things, again, comes back to the collective bargaining agreement. Again, another reason why Act 111 is so important, um, and so, which is why I keep pushing that issue. Well, but you're absolutely right. These issues continue to happen, whether there's a hashtag or, or if it's in the news or not. We experience these things every day in our community. Before we pivot to any other topic, I, I, uh, understanding that it's a Republican control control there in, in, uh, in Harrisburg, how can our listeners here at Philly's Favor, knowing that this is critical, uh, how can they help to push the issue uh, to help get you some support there in Harrisburg to get this legislation moving? So we have... You know, a lot of support here in Philadelphia. We have a lot of support in some communities across the state. But for those of us who have family across this Commonwealth, particularly in more rural areas, in Aliquippa and Johnstown, talk to your family. Let them know about this legislation and tell them to call their legislators. What I have learned is that in the last couple of years of serving in the House is that while, you know, we may only see a few black and brown representatives from Philly and Pittsburgh, there are black and brown folks 
all across this Commonwealth, um, and their legislators need to hear from them um, so that they can understand that this is an important issue in their districts, just as, as it is in Philadelphia. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we before we came on the air, we were talking just a little bit about the Black Caucus. I've I've had the honor of having uh, Representative McClinton on the show, Representative Dawkins, uh, I know Representative Harris very uh, very well. Uh, all of you are working together and doing a great job. But one of the major focuses of the Black Ca- Black Caucus is is working through this budget uh, that, 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 that's uh, going through Harrisburg right now and making sure that there's some equity uh, uh, in all communities and in all areas. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I'm the chair of the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus this year, the third woman to serve in that role. I was honored to serve as vice chair under Rep. Jordan Harris and Rep. Stephen Kinsey. And here I am now, and I said, you know, I'm also a member of the Appropriations Committee, which is the committee responsible for deciding how we spend our money. And many folks know how we spend our money is a testament to our priorities as a state and as a government, right? So, Looking at the budget year after year, I've always asked, how do we, you know, use our budget to empower um, black and brown employers and employees and contracts to minority businesses? This year, I said, we can use this budget as a tool to really invest in racial justice. You know, let's give it more, I need to have more than words here. We need to see dollar signs behind all of these efforts that we keep hearing from different department heads and agencies that, you know, they recognize during the coronavirus all of these racial inequities and disparities, and they can put it in a nice chart. They can give you a nice glossy report, and that's great. We can keep indexing and chronicalizing all of the uh, inequalities you want. My community, our community, we already know about these inequalities. We don't need any more studies or assessments. We need solutions, and often solutions need dollars behind those those solutions. And so I um, have created a subcommittee on budget equity, appointed a freshman legislator from Montgomery County, a rep Napoleon Nelson, graduate of Wharton School of Business here in Philadelphia, brilliant brilliant mind, also a graduate of Central High School, and he's been working with me and several other of our colleagues and advocates to create a budget that invests in Black Pennsylvania, to to look at budget priorities that we say really helps uh, look at, you know, the years of disinvestment, the years of structural racism that has elevated other communities at the risk of, or, you know, at while sacrificing ours and saying, how can we turn back some of those wrongs um, and, and really put the money behind it? I think it's necessary. Budgets are not colorblind. Budgets are not, you know, um, immune to racism. And for years, we know, we know our country's history of where we invested, whether it was grants or um, home ownership loans to allow, you know, certain communities to to move into the suburbs and or to support white businesses and with business grants and things like that. Those kind of investments need to happen in our communities specifically for black and brown communities. You know, we, when we speak of priorities, you know, we, we certainly, and I know we can't ignore uh, what has transpired uh, in our communities as a result of this pandemic. Uh, sometimes I wonder if, if, if people really realize 
how this pandemic has impacted uh, the black and brown community. Uh, when you think about small businesses, small businesses employ uh, a lot of black and brown people. Uh, and a lot of our small businesses have ceased to operate during this pandemic. Uh, a lot of our small businesses are operating at limited capacity or at a lower percentage than pre-pandemic, uh, 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 the pre-pandemic time period. Uh, as you look at that budget, uh, what priority are we placing on helping uh, these small businesses that have been impacted uh, so greatly uh, by this one-year-long pandemic? Now, one thing that the governor is proposing is that we took $145 million from the workers' comp fund, which has been sitting, you know, there weren't a lot of worker comp um, claims last year because folks were at home, and there was additional dollars in that fund. So taking some of that $145 million from that fund, directly spending it on small businesses, um, and it was targeted mostly to our restaurant industry because they were hit the hardest. Um, they had to be closed longer than other businesses and even haven't been allowed to open at full capacity. But we also, over the summer, we had created a small business COVID release grant that was specifically targeted to historically disadvantaged businesses, which is our Black and Latino and Asian American businesses. So there were um, direct you know, uh, initiatives from the summer to now in the state to address it, in large part because we know that the federal PPP loans did not target these these businesses. In fact, it completely missed these these businesses. Um, and we know that there are statistics that say for Black-owned businesses, we're going to see many of them close their doors and unfortunately not reopen. So we have to do all we can to uplift those businesses. Because like you said, they employ our families, they employ our neighbors, they also are anchors in our communities. Right. You know, there's, there's a couple of anchors in our communities. The church is number one, schools are number two, and then small businesses are definitely number three. And so we need to find ways to keep those businesses um, up, up, uplifted and, 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 and around post-pandemic. That is important. It is significantly important. You, 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 say, you, know, you say something that is real, and that is that the church is the cornerstone of our communities. But it has really surprised me that um, there have been, there's been limited uh, support for our churches. Um, yes, EIDL loans are available, and yes, PPP is available for those churches that have uh, actual payroll. But you know as well as I do, there are a lot of churches that don't have uh, all of that documentation uh, and payroll. So a lot of those churches missed it. And now you're looking coming on a year uh, as of March 16th where churches have uh, – where, where the congregants haven't been in the sanctuary, uh, which means that the offerings are down, tithing is down. Uh, there are churches in this community that have been dark for a year. Uh, and I only bring this up and pivot to this because I heard you say it, but, but how do we secure some additional support for these cornerstones of the community and make it accessible? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. And, and that was a challenge. A lot of the churches, although they were told they could apply for the PPP loans, it was very difficult because how church business runs doesn't mirror how the businesses on the commercial corridors operate. So being able to document some of those things was very difficult. Um, and now as we move forward, um, 
you know, we have to come up with creative funding mechanisms to support non- the whole entire nonprofit community because I don't think we can specifically say this is a fund for churches right. because of you know church and state separation. Sure. But if we created a fund that was for nonprofits and all of our churches qualify as a nonprofit, then we can support you know whether the church or a local community group that's providing food resources to the community or a local child care facility. You know we have to figure out ways to support all of the um, su- the the support network. There's or I would say the ecosystem of our community. Right there is this ecosystem that exists that includes these nonprofits and these churches and our non- and our small business owners. Um, and if we are not able to keep them um, you know, above water, and we come out of this pandemic, and folks are looking for resources. Folks are looking for childcare so that they can go back to work. Um, and some of our churches operate childcare centers. If we, folks are looking for assistance for their elderly, you know, parents to care for them while they're working, and those resources are not there. Those resources don't exist because they didn't get the support they needed to keep their employees in, um, on employed, to keep the lights on in their facilities or in their their places of worship. You know, and all of these other things that churches and our nonprofit community provide in place of the government. Um, we're, the government is going to have to make up that loss. There's going to be a – we've seen, right, the, the, the food lines are longer. So sure. the lines for other services are longer. More folks are in need than have ever been before. And, uh, and in Pastor, I could take just a little bit of liberty here. You know, I grew up um, in, in need, and my family used to go to a soup kitchen back in New Jersey where I grew up, and it was called Elijah's Promise. And Elijah's promise was built on this story. I'm going to get my Bible a little wrong here, but I think I got it, (laughs) where Elijah was traveling. He stopped at a widow's house and Mm -hmm. he said he needed some food. And she provided, you know, what she had. She was, she was, she was concerned because she didn't have much, but she said, I I only got this. That's right. This little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. She said, if you take care of me, I promise you God will take care of you tomorrow. I have a sermon on that text titled One Pastor. Uh, and two members, uh, because it was the widow and her child. Absolutely. You got your Bible right. All right. (laughs) And so when you look at that story, we need to take care of those organizations, those those cornerstones in our our community today, so that they can take care of our entire community tomorrow. I honestly believe that. Um, And so, you know, um, there is work to be done there. Um, and I hope to work with my colleagues to find other funding sources and mechanisms to make that happen. You're listening to Philly's Favorite 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We're talking with the representative for the state representative for the 195th District uh, here in Philadelphia, State Representative Donna Bullock. Uh, state Representative, we only have a few more minutes with you. So before we depart, I'll have to ask you about uh, vaccine distribution uh, into the communities of color. Uh, we certainly have seen here in Philadelphia uh, that the rollout has been has been challenging. Let, let's let let's say it that way. Uh, and uh, but but we but I know that there are many in city council and state government uh, uh, that are really pushing to make sure that we become very aggressive about making sure that the vaccines reach communities of color. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your work in this area, what you're seeing and observing, and how we can make sure we get this vaccine in all arms? Right. So what I'll tell you is that the challenge 
The vaccine rollout challenge exists across the Commonwealth. On Monday, I had a call with Black leaders from across the state. I mean, from Erie to uh, parts of the of, of the um, Lehigh Valley, Berks County, everywhere in the state. They were on this call, and we talked about the challenges that they were seeing. And it's even more difficult in those counties because they have to rely on the state. The state is operating the vaccine rollout in the rest of the state, and Philadelphia is doing its own, has its own batch of vaccines and is responsible for its own rollout. So there have been challenges all across the state, I'm sure across the country, and particularly for our communities of color. The, the, what we've seen is we've seen people going on vaccine holidays where they are traveling to communities of color where uh, vaccine um, events are happening specifically to, to reach out to our community. And we're seeing others um, coming, you know, doing vaccine tourism, I guess you would say, and coming into our communities to, to get in our lines for our vaccines. Um, so we have to really look at how we um, equitably distribute the vaccine, work with trusted partners you know, like the Black Doctors Consortium, who's been working with the faith community, like Latino Connection, who's working also um, in the Latino communities in Philadelphia and across the Commonwealth. And there's another Black Doctors group in Pittsburgh. We need to work with those trusted messengers, the trusted um, community members to reach out to our community. But we also need to be strategic about how we... Um, how we operate and, and, and um, put these events together um, because we have seen, we've heard it publicly, there's been stories about it, um, and it is happening across the state. We have to find more dollars. We have to put the dollars behind the work, folks that are doing the work. we got to put the dollars behind education and outreach efforts. Um, we have to do that in multiple languages. Uh, we have communities in Philadelphia, uh, whether they're uh, West African community or the Latino community, who right now the vaccine information uh, to, to register, none of that is in any other language than English. So there's, there's work to be done. Uh, we started our first town hall meeting, I said, on Monday. I hope to continue to talk to communities across the state about getting vaccines into the arms of black and brown communities. And why is that important? Our communities, our, our friends, our family, our neighbors, we, were, we are the frontline workers. We have, you know, been on the front lines working in the grocery stores, working at nurse, as nurses, working in the nursing homes. You know, so we've been exposed. We, we live in more densely populated communities. Um, and so we have pre-existing health conditions. So there's so many reasons why it is important that our community is prioritized and that we are um you know, listening to the information from doctors that we trust um, to get vaccinated. Well, Representative Bullock, I want to share with you exactly what I shared with Dr. Farley when he was here on the show, and that is that we are going to make available the airwaves of Philly's favor uh, to you and to any of the other representatives uh, on the state or local level uh, to get the message out. You know, 
gospel music is a passion format. People listen all day long, and 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 we need to be able to 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 get this message out because I know I'm in a community right now where there's been no vaccine at all. Uh, and yesterday I had three calls: uh, one with the city representative, one with the health agency, and one with uh, some members from Dr. Farley's staff about how we get vaccine in this community. Uh, because guess what? These folk are not getting on the train, the bus, or in a car and going to the Leah Cora Center. They're not doing it. They're not They're not mm-hmm. going across town to get vaccinated. We've got to be aggressive about bringing the vaccine to the people. Uh, so anything that we can do to be of assistance to you, uh, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, we want to be a vehicle to make sure uh, that we crush this virus and get back to some sense of normalcy. Uh, so I want to thank you today for being uh, in the pastor's office. Thank you for the information that you've shared uh, with our audience. And again, I say this, anytime you need to get a message out, you give us a call and the airwaves are yours. Thank you very much. I think you know, as a pastor, I know as an elected official, getting that message to the people where they are, however they are, and however they come is important and and most uh, is, is our priority. God bless you, Representative Bullock. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you real soon. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Mm-hmm. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you're while listening to Phyllis Faber. Just for a minute, just for a minute, let's talk about it just for a little while.